Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Well, uh, hello, good morning and uh, welcome to Strong Voices. Uh, for today, it is Tuesday, the 1st of October 2019. I'm Paul Wiles and it's great to uh, be back in the seat again, filling in for Kyle Dowling, who will be joining us a little later in the program with a report from the Torres Strait Islands. Well, uh, coming up today, as I mentioned, we will be going to the Torres Straits and very shortly we have uh, a couple of very special guests guests uh, joining us. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Coming up uh, very shortly, we'll go to a song break um, and we will be back with uh, a couple of uh, special guests. And welcome back to Strong Voices. I'm Paul Wiles. Well, I did mention we have uh, some special guests dropping in. Uh, The foyer's uh, been full this morning with special guests, but uh, it's my pleasure to welcome an old friend of Karma. He's back in the building. Chansey Paik joins us. Chansey, good morning. Good morning, Paul, and uh, hello to everyone tuned in today. Well, Chansey, just for those um, who don't know what you do, tell us your role and what have you been doing? Well, my role is the member for Namajira and uh, basically I spend uh, most of my time out and about in the bush talking to people, following up on issues or ideas that they have. So certainly uh, always talking to people about... uh, better housing in the bush and bush roads because we know that we need to get the roads fixed so we're working on Tijikala Road just about to start uh, grading and uh, sealing another 20 kilometres on that road so some exciting things happening in and around the bush. Just for those people who uh, are fortunate to live in uh, a, uh, a town like uh, Alice or Tennant or the build-up areas that have uh, roads when you live in a remote community, just going into town and getting home is a little bit different. certainly is. Uh, bush roads currently get graded on average around twice a year, uh, go through and, and grade them to smooth them for people. So it is an issue that we're always having to deal with in and around the bush is making sure that those roads are good. So, you know, uh, again, the Tijikala Road is, is a road that we need to do some work on, and we are. Santa Teresa Road is always a, a very rough road, and certainly I've just been out west uh, over the weekend uh, and talking to people uh, at Kintore and Hearts Bluff and uh, need to follow up and make sure that we can get those roads fixed. Uh, Again, um, for those people living remotely, they uh, put up with a lot, a lot that uh, other Territorians don't put up with. But uh, life in these remote communities, I mean, what are people doing? Life in a remote community in Central Australia is probably, I reckon, the best life that you can have. It's uh, it's beautiful. Being out on country um, 
and just being able to be out in the openness and be out with the environment uh, is beautiful. Being out on country keeps people strong. I, you know, all the time out in the bush, I always hear from many people is, uh, you know, strong country means strong people. So I think it's about continuing to keep that going and making sure that we can support it as best we can. So, you know, there are challenges out bush, but it's making sure that we're able to support people to uh, stay out bush and live on country because they are the people who look after country and protect and look after the songs and stories right across country. Mm. And again, the, um, the the significance of what you've just mentioned, I mean, this is something that the mob have been doing for thousands of years uh, with very little recognition. Uh, we do know now that uh, governments are starting to recognise and accept that um, maintaining country uh, isn't something that just happens. Yeah, sure. Um this coming sittings in October, uh, we'll have the um, Northern Territory Parliament will be debating legislation being put forward around uh, recognising Indigenous Rangers as environmental officers. So it's giving them more power around uh, looking after country. So Indigenous Rangers under this legislation will actually be given the same legal uh, rights as Parks and Wildlife Rangers because we acknowledge and understand that uh, those Indigenous ranger groups do the same work and need to be valued just as much as we value our other rangers. So that's really important legislation or uh, laws before the parliament that we'll be debating um, because it's recognising that many, many uh, cultural um, practices such as uh, backburning uh, and hunting and, and those types of things have a really, really strong environmental significance. Uh, and they're great practices that we're seeing people right across the world adopting. You know, there are people uh, in Canada and those places who look to uh, Aboriginal people in Central Australia around our fire management practices. So it's very important to acknowledge that. I think as well, we need to look at remote communities are places full of language, law, love and culture. You know, I've been out to many sports carnivals. We've got Neurophy Sports coming up in, a, in, in November. Uh, we've just had Tijikala Sports this weekend. Of course, we had Yundamu Sports, which was a great, great event. Uh, we've got the horse races coming up in Santa Teresa in uh, November. So there are always great events right across the bush. And we need to make sure that we promote them because they're really important. Recently, I was up in Kalgoorindji for the Freedom Day Festival. What an amazing festival that is and such a significant time. But it's also a great time, uh, Paul, I was thinking about reflecting on those significant elders who really, really fought for us to have the rights that we have now, the Aboriginal land rights and, and those types of things. And, of course, you know, we're at a time where we're fighting to be recognised in the Australian Constitution with uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Um, and that's a really, really important movement. And we need to get uh, a number of uh, politicians on board to support it but a number of people in the wider community as well. So, you know, I was very upset um, a few months or maybe a month or a few weeks ago uh, when the Vincent Lingiari speech was given by the Minister Ken White in Darwin where he used that speech to say that the government wasn't going to honour 
uh, the Uluru Statement from the heart and enshrine a voice in the Constitution. That was very upsetting. I think that there are so many people who've done a lot of work uh, to be recognised. Mm. Uh, my next guest coming up will be uh, talking about that. Brilliant. Very oh, it's very, very good. We won't steal that. <laughs> no, 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 please, no. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I think... Uh, We've had plenty of sports carnivals. The art centres are, uh, you know, bustling colours and vibrant works happening right across the bush. Um, And I think that we still need to do a lot of work to educate the rest of the country uh, just how important remote communities are in Central Australia uh, and how much of an economic opportunity there is in the bush. We need to work with people to do more to unlock that potential. Just um, on that particular area, again, uh, we have seen in the last um, decade uh, a growing recognition of Aboriginal cultural knowledge and uh, the significance of that. We we just touched on that, or you did. Yeah, sure. Uh, but going into the future, I mean, when we talk about, uh, uh, you know, uh, Australia's just signed up uh, with the USA uh, committing uh, millions and millions of dollars to, to exploring outer space. Uh, uh, one particular area that uh, there's been growing, growing recognition of uh, Aboriginal cultural knowledge and understanding is in the field of astrophysics, where we, we know that... Uh, Aboriginal people have been stargazing for thousands of years and uh, they too have uh, a significant contribution to make. We know that there's a a group of uh, young Aboriginal astrophysicists in Melbourne University that have been uh, coming out uh, through that program for a number of years now but across the board what we are seeing and particularly at Melbourne University now is a growing acceptance and recognition of Aboriginal cultural knowledge across all fields. Certainly. I think that is one thing we do need to get better at as well, though, is um, there should be no reason why a young kid, whether you're living in Kintore or Kalgarindji or Lajumanu or Docker River, shouldn't also want to aspire to be, uh, you know, an astronaut or a doctor or anything. So we need to get better with how we deliver, you know, our science, technology, engineering and mathematics in remote schools um, because that's certainly something that we want to do. But there is also the need to continue to recognise that since time immemorial, Aboriginal people uh, have been certainly the best people placed to understand uh, the land and the skies and the and the river systems. We know where the water is. We know uh, where the, the the stars are. Our roadmaps to get in directions. Uh, we know the signs. And I think uh, if we continue to accept those uh, beliefs then we will actually continue to see progress right across the board. And going into the future, uh, you touched on uh, knowing where the water is. I think that is going to become a very significant issue in the next few decades. Absolutely. One of my uh, wishes that I really, really want to continue to work with people and lobby all levels of government to get on board with is... um, the prospect of recycling water as well. We've got large evaporation ponds in remote community where where wastewater is is stored and I think there's a unique opportunity to look at desalinisation and recycling water so that we can green our communities. You know, we can use that water not to drink but to to have lawn on ovals, to have trees for shade to reduce the heat, to have uh, 
plants and gardens around houses because not only does it uh, provide a cooling space, but it also reduces the dust, which has great health implications. And you can also grow crops so that you can have fruit trees and orchards. So certainly something I want to talk more about is how can we look at uh, starting to recycle water in our remote communities so that people uh, have uh, comfortable and cooling spaces. Tansy Paik, always good to catch up with you to get an update about what's going on. Uh, You've uh, raised some significant issues and uh, issues that we'll continue to uh, explore uh, going into the future. But uh, for today, thanks for dropping by. Thanks for joining us and uh, sharing what you've been up to. And uh, we will uh, watch on with interest. Thank you very much, Paul. And a big shout out to uh, everyone in the bush. Uh, Hope you have a good day. G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. And welcome back to the program. Well, as we say, it's always lovely to have special guests joining us here live in the Karma studio. Tonight here in Mbantua, Alice Springs, we have a very special book launch and we're very happy to say joining us live in the Karma studio, the author of the new book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, The Journey of the Uluru Statement Towards Voice treaty and truth it's a very good morning to thomas mayor thomas welcome thanks mate and it's also a welcome to barb shaw barb welcome back hello paul well thomas the book a significant journey for anyone but to be able to record it and leave it in the form of a book it's a significant statement all round. and i hope that it does it justice uh, i have written a book because i want to uh, achieve what uh, what the uluru statement calls for so the book is very much about a campaign And I thought the most powerful thing that I could do um, would be to help people to hear the voices of people like Barb Shaw and uh, Sammy Wilson and, and other wonderful Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from throughout the country. As part of uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, you travelled across the nation. You went to many remote communities. You were very fortunate to be able to get to the very heart of what the First Nations think about what is going on in this nation. What, I mean, how significant is that alone? It was reinforcing, I suppose. I mean, I'd been through uh, the dialogue process, selected out of the Darwin Regional Dialogue on Constitutional Recognition to go to Uluru. And then at Uluru, we, you know, and Barb was there, we endorsed the Uluru Statement with standing acclamation and very clearly said we want a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice and a Makarata Commission for truth-telling and to support treaty-making. But then going around the country and visiting other communities and informing people, because a lot of people still haven't heard about it, it was quite a job to get out there and teach people about what happened and and why the people called for that. But it reinforced my confidence that what we did at Uluru was right, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from all around the country support this. Bob, been in contact with many people at a grassroots level, there was a lot of consternation around, well, what will constitutional recognition mean to the First Nations living remotely? I mean, are they interested do they care? What will the impact be on them? I mean, these are the big questions that had to be answered. I guess the first thing is that if no one knows, then nobody cares. But um, with me being at the dialogue here at Ross River and then chosen to go down to Uluru, um, and and it is what people have been calling for a long time, um, since way back in the 80s. Um, so... 
the treaty was already talked about. We've even got a song about a treaty. Um, so being involved in all these discussions with many different Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, right, you know, from all corners of Australia, they're in their heart, like the title of the song, um, book is Finding the Heart of the Nation, and there were many nations represented there. Um, they weren't hand-picked. They were chosen by the people to attend the convention at Uluru. Um, and the statement, I guess, the Uluru statement, and Thomas knows it off by heart. I've seen him <laughs> so, so many times say it. But it came from words from the people of the dialogues. And um, and it started off, you know, you got to take your hat off for um, Kevin Rudd and... Julia Gillard and Jenny Macklin, I guess, you know, our former Prime Minister and our Indigenous Affairs Minister, who actually started the ball rolling um, or started pushing it again. And for us to, for us First Nations, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people to be involved with this, then it's something that, you know, governments need to listen to. And, and you know, I've got to reiterate what Sally Scales said on... Q&A um, just, you know, not not so long ago, it, it was about giving the statement to the people so the people can understand where we are coming from, not just to politicians to, oh, you have a read and then chuck on the shelf. It's about putting the Uluru statement into action and that's where a voice to parliament um, that was called for, a treaty. So when you're talking about a treaty, you're talking to simplify a treaty the way how we would understand what a treaty is, is is an agreement and out of an agreement you want action, so action out of that. And then when we look at the constitution, everybody is involved in some kind of corporation, you know, Aboriginal corporation, and they got rule books. So to simplify a constitution is to look at the rule book because um, then that way our mob can understand, oh, yeah, these are the rules of Australia, but the, we want to be able to be part of the rule book and making sure that we've got rules in there for us. Thomas, it was always difficult when we look at First Nations politics as compared to whitefella politics. For thousands of years, the First Nations have had a set of laws and rules and politics that have worked very, very well. For the last 230, 40 years, they've had another set of rules imposed on them. How difficult is that to sell? Well, um, for our people, it's, it's not the rules that, uh, that we must abide by. It's actually affecting the rules that the whitefellas are making. And we're not doing that well enough. And so the idea of the, having a voice in the rule book, as Barb described so well, is to force the whitefellas that make the decisions to listen to us about how they should make policy and legislation and how we should be funded consistently, all those things, all those those issues that affect our communities from day to day all have a root cause and that's that they don't listen. So we've got to make it the rule that the whitefella listen. And again, would this explain the delay in constitutional recognition, the fear that the mob want to have a say? From the tour, as I was saying, um, it reinforced that we got this right. And from the, the politicians' reaction, that also reinforced that we were right because those that would prefer the status quo where we are powerless and impoverished and disempowered have opposed this. And so there's a good balance. We have some politicians that support it, 
but those politicians that are generally against equality and uh, and fairness are fighting against it. That tells us that we got it right as well. But as Barb said, now it's for the Australian people, all of us, to push hard and say constitutional recognition is by way of a voice enshrined and it must be that. And we're heading towards a co-design process at the moment. Um, they're going to be running this process of asking us again, but we've got to really, and I say this to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, when we have that opportunity to engage in this co-design process, we've got to make it clear that we have said at Uluru, we drew the line in the sand, that a voice is the only form of recognition we want. We don't want symbolism, symbolism that does nothing. We want it to be the rule that the, the decision makers in this country must listen to our voice. And again, uh, there is a very powerful lobby group within this nation that sees giving the mob a voice and actually being equal players is not going to happen. Well, I think they're the same people that opposed marriage equality. They're the same people that opposed getting children out of mines and child labour. They opposed annual leave. They opposed maternity leave. It's the same sort of people. And the only way we've ever overcome them to make this country as decent as it is, is by the people power. But what are the mobs saying about their laws, their culture, and how are is the wider Australian community going to take that on board? Well, for starters, you know, a lot of lot of our elders are always saying, you know, we've had our law, we've been practising our law and culture for so many years, we've got our own rules and regulations around how to govern our laws over 60,000 years. And then, like you said, 200-plus years later, you know, we had to adapt to that other law. So it's about two laws working side by side moving forward and if that other law on this side is not going to work with our law and give us respect in that sense then how are we going to be moving forward together and I and I guess you wouldn't know anything about my law but I know a lot about your law because that's the way how we were brought up in two worlds um, and like a lot of lot of people will say, well, we don't know about this law. We only just know because we see it on TV, we hear it on the radio, or we read it in the papers that, you know, people in Canberra and people in Darwin are going to make laws that are going to affect us on the ground. And our, our more basically want the truth told, and this is how we're going to be doing our law, but we don't want you to take that off us you know, like they did in the intervention days and scrapping and setting aside the Racial Discrimination Act of 75. So all of those, it's quite complex for people to understand out bush if you've got English as a third or fourth language or you've got broken English. So you just got to simplify the language so people can understand. And once they understand, then they know and they know what's right, what's wrong, and, and then they can develop their own ways in their community. So 60,000 years of traditional law and culture isn't going to be taken away overnight. So people still want to be able to have their laws enshrined together, working in two worlds, working together, walking the same path together. Thomas, what is it 
that the book says. The book, it's so full of hope. I, I didn't expect to have so much hope come out of it. You know, I, I expected sad stories and, and all that sort of thing. But what, what really came through was what's in common is that everybody has experienced racism, that everybody has these same issues. But what's different is everybody's experience on how they and why they support a vo the Voice to Parliament and the Makarata Commission. Just to uh, finish off, the book launch tonight uh, at Red Kangaroo? Yes, it's at 5.30. 5.30, you, you and Barb will be there to sign the book? Yeah, we'll be there um, and I hope to see all the locals there, you know, coming and, and supporting this. Um, it's very much about all of us and, and I think people will get a lot out of the book. Things that Barb was just talking about, the process and so many wonderful stories. It's in, it interviews 19 people in this and uh, also in there, in addition, is Rini Kulitzer, the artist that led the painting of the statement with several others. Also Marcia Langton has a few words and Danny Glover, the, uh, the American actor and civil rights activist, um, is in there. So it's a really interesting book and I hope people come along to hear about it. Yeah. On that note, uh, Barb Shaw, Thomas Mayer, many Thanks for joining us. Thank Thanks. you. See Thanks, you at 30. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. And uh, many thanks to Thomas Mayer and Barbara Shaw for joining us uh, live in the Karma Studios this morning. Uh, the book launch 5.30 at uh, Red Kangaroo. Uh, make sure you take the opportunity to get down there. Have a have a yarn to uh, Thomas and Barb. Uh, the book is, uh, is amazing and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to get uh, your book uh, signed by Thomas and Barb and uh, certainly uh, something that you can uh, hand down to your children and uh, keep in the family. Well, uh, moving on, in Thursday Island late last week, a report was released outlining the priorities of community members towards healing. The report was a result of a partnership between the Healing Foundation, Morakoska, and Torres Strait Islander communities. Karma's Kyle Dowling spoke with Regina Turner, president of Morakoska, who begins by explaining how the partnership came about. Two years ago, Morakoska was approached by the Healing Foundation in 2017 and the aim of the conversation was to have three healing forums, what we call healing sit-down, at the different communities who would put in a, a expression of interest to have those healing sit-downs there outside where their community. So three communities came forward. One of them was Masig Island. The other one was Ayama also known as Yam Island, and the Kaurig people here, the custodians of the land that I'm talking from. Yeah, so Morakoska is all about community um, organisations, empowering community. Our aim is to uh, build a strong, safe community. And to do that, healing is part of the process and also uh, addressing social um, issues such as preventing domestic and family violence, um, old people's action programs, keeping our elders well involved rather than leaving them isolated and cut out, um, child and family support, making sure that we've got positive parenting for our young mums and bubs that, that out there. Um, We've also just recently won a tender, um, a Queensland government um, investment in the well-being, family well-being program, which we call Murabuai, and Murabuai means all families. So it's a whole culmination of um, services that we offer 
to help our families from grassroots, um, whether you're zero to elderly. Um, you know, this is a social service that's been about for 30 years. Our mothers have been very strong and instrumental, and they went against the grain, against the cultural barriers. Yeah. What in particular were, were these communities sort of, you know, sort of facing and, and looking to sort of get that healing in regards to? There was a lot of intergenerational trauma that had happened over the over the past with our grandfathers and our forefathers before them. Just around the colonisation, you know, how we weren't really recognised. Back in the day, I remember the parents, my parents saying that we were classed as, you know, animal. So just the disrespect and the disharmony and the displacement of some of the families that have happened over the years. It's just been absolutely mind-boggling and upsetting. What sort of then come from these meetings that have taken place from these community members? We first and foremost had those healing sit-downs and all the information, the key priorities were actually documented and put into a final report. And out of that report, the people from the community the men, the women, the children, they came together, they walked side by side. They actually came to write a priority action list that needs to happen in community for healing to occur. So basically, you know, the things that came out of there was recognising, you know, and, and acceptance and respect um, keeping our culture alive, our, our, our traditions, um, you know, that the, that's where we're losing our culture all because of all these other distractions that come in. But, um, you know, it was written for community, by community, and it's a beacon for service providers like Murakoskare, all the government agencies and other non-government agencies to be able to see what these priorities are and see and be actually in, instrumental in helping um, healing these families at those three communities. And there's definitely um, been some priorities where they've actually outlined who the agencies they feel that should be there and that's their, uh, the work that they do. Or we call it here Zaget. Murakoska is about building strong and safe communities. So this is why we're so involved, because we have a footprint in the Torres Strait. Why is it so important to have, like you were saying, uh, whole families, the community, you know, the women, the men and the children all coming together to be able to have their say on this? It's very important because we never had that opportunity before. It was always listening to what the government came in and had to say to us. Now that conversation has turned around and it's now the people using their voice. And that's how it should have been from the get-go. And it's really important. It was, like I said earlier, it was written by community, for community. And we as social agencies that come into community, they will actually keep us, hold us accountable and remind us. And us reminding ourselves, also implementing these actions into our uh, staff, our, our programs, our, their operational plan. So from here... The, the commitment from Murakoska is we are in the position now, we're going to be angry women calling on government to come and see these recommendations and help us and actually negotiate with them to help us 
help community to achieve these priority actions that have been uh, outlined. First, I just want to acknowledge all those that were very instrumental in these um, healing forums, especially the Healing Foundation, our staff, um, the Murakoskera sorority staff, um, our, my board, um, you know, for supporting the work um, and agreeing to work together with the Healing Foundation. And um, we've only just started, um, we've just scratched the surface, to be honest. There's so much work to be done, and we will continue to work with the Healing Foundation to make sure that each and every 14 communities, um, you know, out of the 19 are actually um, have gone through this process. Regina Turner there, president of uh, Murakoska, ending that story. You're listening to Strong Voices, Karma Radio, 8kin FM. Hey, you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8kin FM. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Strong Voices. I'm Paul Wiles, filling in for Kyle Dowling, who is uh, filing this current report. Well, uh, last Thursday, the uh, Corrig Healing Forum report was launched on Thursday Island. The report follows a partnership between three Torres Strait Island communities, uh, Masig, uh, Yama and Corrig, with the Healing Foundation and Murakoska Sorority. Elder and chair of the Corrig Native Title Aboriginal Corporation, Milton Savage, explains why his people wanted to be involved in the healing forums. We do have a story to tell. Past injustice, our Corrig people were being forcibly removed from their homeland and you know, massacred and, you know, all that uh, degrading past. The story, why Kaurak people are still traumatized by that era, still holding on to that, that pain and hurt, uh, intergenerational trauma. We want to heal. Uh, we want to be healed and also to help others to heal as well. Because of the, the policy that was implemented here by, you know, the early colonial government back in uh, the colonial days, just in the process of healing, fighting racial discrimination issues and building relationships, coming together, acknowledging the hurt and the pain, the past history, the past injustice, how we address it and how we move forward. So that's important thing that color eggs uh, play the, the role uh, in, in this process, healing process. And in terms of those, I guess, the way forward then, what what, what were some of the priorities and stuff that, that, that your mob identified? With the help and support from the Healing Foundation, National Aboriginal Treasury and the Healing Foundation, who helped us because uh, the in- engagement of myself, my other, Louisa O'Connor, uh, meeting up with uh, a special person, brother, uh, Mr. Grant Sarah, uh, who is a very, very special person in, uh, you know, uh, in our life today, um, who has helped us to to do a healing uh, with our mob. And because coming back to Thursday Island, Thursday Island, uh, they, the past government, the, the then government, had implemented a policy uh, which they call it the class system. White means superior, you got Asian, Malaysian, Japanese, uh, Chinese, then you got the Pacific Islanders, uh, then you got a Torres Strait Islanders and Aborigines and Papuans were treated like mud, lowest of lowest waste. You know what I mean? So it's all coming back. It's all bringing all that issue up front in challenging and facing and correcting the past mistakes because it's, it's like a disease being implanted in our mind and you know to see see one of the 
one another differently when really it is not our way. It was what was implanted under the Aboriginal Protection Act and uh, Torres Strait Islander Act, so the policy that was implemented by the government. So it's all about addressing all the past injustice issues and also fighting racial discrimination. Yeah, and, and you know, we often see that whenever we're people are sort of discussing colonisation, people seem to get, you know, uh, quite negative when when people are bringing it up and they, they almost get sort of defensive against when people bring up the impacts of colonisation because the reality is the impacts are still being felt today, aren't they? Yes, but for me, for me personally, I always confront people, but in an healing way. And I always say to people that, you know, I do not point finger at anybody or blame anybody for it. And what I'm saying, I, I, I don't expect you to agree with me or disagree with me. All I'm asking is for you to understand what I'm saying. Because hopefully one day you will make it be your concern. Because that's, that's all what, what we're sort of putting out there for people, to make it your concern, that make sure that these sort of things don't ever, ever happen again to anyone. So what happened in the, in the past, we all know it was a mistake, but it's how that we address it and how that we move forward. Because, you know, as the saying goes, you know, to understand the present time, you must understand the past. So our future will be bright, you know, so we can, we can decide the future for ourselves. So it's just a process of education. When you look at the the class system. Why was the class system impl- implemented or established? So do we really need the class system? No, we don't. We're all equal in the eyes of God. We're all one. We're all one people. So that's what we're addressing. It was wrong that they established the class system in the first place. And also with uh, how people were massacred, being massacred, uh, there was genocide, and also forcibly removed at gunpoint from our traditional homeland and not realizing that there wasn't uh, the act, we were under the Aboriginal Protection Act, uh, that says that, you know, if you have a feature of an Aboriginal person, your rights become like a stroke of a pen. So all these acts that were put in place uh, that dismantle our, our people, not to practice our, our songs, our culture, our language, our tradition, so we were like restricted from everything. So it's like now when we understood when you know when we understood the whole concept of that that era, which was wrong. So we got to come back and correct it. So that's what we're saying. It's a process of healing. Let's heal ourselves first before we can reach out and heal others. So that's what we're doing here at the moment with the correct. And obviously, it is very early days. But how? Did you find that process in terms of being able to engage the community and share the thoughts in terms of moving forward? It was a challenge at first because um, once we won the native title uh, determination back in 2001, that's when things started to change. When people here living in this region learned that Kaurik people have just claimed native title over their islands. So this is when all that attitude changed. People started to do, do their their research in genealogy to find out if they were all connected to Kaurig as well. So see that that, that mindset, how, how it sort of changed, and with what I'm doing now, myself and my other half, Louisa, I brought a big change to this part of the region. We are, we are now like the leading leading uh, people 
in leading that healing process, in giving recognition now to one another. So we, we, we're telling people that it's okay, it's okay. It's okay that you've degraded me because now we know the truth. It wasn't your fault. It was how the policy was established here. So we were all in the fear of the gun. So you see the Protection Act, everything was made under that the fear of the gun. So now that we've learned our, yes, we do have rights. We do have rights now. So it's okay, we can talk about these things and we can bring these things forward so that we can all heal. It's not about blaming one another or pointing finger at one another. It's about us getting together, reconciling with one another, acknowledging and moving forward together because we live together now. So that's, that's the process of the healing and for Kaurik to take the lead because being left in the dark, coming out, being disadvantaged, now coming out and now addressing all the issues and also reaching out to people and telling people, come, come with us. This is about us together. And yeah, that, that's, that's a big improvement and a big change. Yeah. So we, we are very, very grateful. Following the, the launch of this report, what are your sort of aspirations then moving forward? To have unity and actually to tell the indigenous side of story. Because when we, my time, when I went to school, like I, I'm 55 now, 55 years of age. When I went to school, I was taught that Captain Cook was the first European to discover Australia. Now, when, I, when I'm older and I've learned all these things, I said, no, what a, you know, chairman, you know, what a whole bunch of lies. So it is my responsibility now to say, no, no, that's wrong. I'm going to tell you the true side of the story. So this is what we're doing now, like for my people like myself. I am also involved with the Endeavour report, the 250-year Endeavour story, Endeavour report. I'm also working with the, the families from Cooktown, Yarraba, the families from down New South Wales, the Kaure Gudang Yadagana family in the north. So we're coming together in telling the, the, the other side of the Cook story, which will also help the nation to understand the true, the true side of the story. That was Elder and Chair of the Coreg Native Title Aboriginal Corporation, Milton Savage, speaking with Karma's Kyle Dowling. That's the show for today. Uh, many thanks to our special guest, Chansey Paik. Um, we also had uh, Thomas Mayer and Barb Shaw, and of course the report from the Torres Strait.